Welcome to Make Mine Multiversity, the best podcast in our universe for exploring the Marvel multiverse. I'm Elias Rosner. And I'm Jay Kill. And this week we are discussing the uh, book club book of the month, and that is Bullet Points. Excelsior. Elias had declared that after I picked the last couple of book club books, that we pick something, a Marvel book that I had never read. And uh, he pulled out Bullet Points. And sure enough, that's something I hadn't even heard of before he suggested it. Bullet Points was a seven, seven part, five part miniseries in 2007, 2006, 2007, that was published under the Marvel Knights imprint, which was basically, not DC, Jesus, today's a day. Um, It was Marvel's, not really response to DC, the the basic history of Marvel Knights is they created an imprint where they could put some of their B or C tier characters uh, and give them darker or more not grounded, but to, to basically free them from continuity a little bit. It's a little pulpier. It's a little less, uh, uh, there's a little less with like space aliens and stuff. And there's a little bit more with like mafia kind of guys there. When, if there's magic, it's more of in the Constantine mold and Dr. Strange mode where it's like dark alleys and hidden secrets. It's, it's shadowy and it's usually dark, but, um, it does, not dark isn't always depressing. Some of it's quite fun. Yeah. And it was spearheaded by Joe Casada and Jimmy Palmiotti. And technically, it was outsourced. They had their own company called Event Comics at the time. So Marvel was not technically running the imprint, even though both Joe Quesada and Jimmy Palmiotti were important figures and became important figures either at Marvel or DC. What's particularly noteworthy about Marvel Knights is that it was basically created because Marvel had gone bankrupt. And they were yeah. like, we need to do something. And it was a huge hit. This Marvel Knights essentially saved and or brought to prominence so many of these heroes and gave us iconic runs of Daredevil, Punisher, Black Panther, Inhumans, Moon Knight. Yeah. Squadron Supreme. Squadron Supreme is a good one. Which was Squadron Supreme by J. Michael Straczynski. Oh, that's right. I That's probably the first comic by him I um, read knowing he was the author on it. We're probably, I think it's very likely we will cover some Daredevil from Marvel Knights on this podcast. That's a personal favorite of mine, and I, I want to, like, a really, like, an all-time great, I think. So that bankruptcy happened in 96, right? And the imprint started in 98. Yes. But it kind of, like, just fizzled out, right? There just were, um, there was fewer and fewer books with the Marvel Knights label, and by, like, 2012, 2013, they just weren't doing books with it anymore. It was kind of a thing of the past. Yeah, all almost all of their ongoings were finished by the mid two thousands. None of them broke fifty, from what it looks like, which which really is a shame. Um, it's kind of the uh, the nature of uh, what comics ended up becoming, and it, and also yeah. I I think, in my opinion, the most notable thing about Marvel Knights has less to do with uh, the characters or even the the company story, and a lot more to do with that was where all the Marvel talent was coming from. Just like these are the guys, and most of them were guys, who ended up defining um, the next 10 years of Marvel. Like, Joe Quesada started on Marvel Knights as an artist, and he moved pretty quickly into an editorial position, and now he's uh, like this bulletproof, untouchable god on top of the Marvel Tower who... I, his corporate title is Chief Creative Officer, right? Uh, Joe Quesada hasn't been with the company for a few years. Uh, he uh, left in 2013. Oh, no. Jesus, he's still with the company. That's what I thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's. I he, thought he was gone. 
Well, so he's so high up that um, when it's you and I and we follow comic stuff, you don't hear about his influence anymore because he, he's in charge of branding and how, like, whether or not the movies and the merchandise are going to be tied together. Like, that's the the level of decisions that he's making now, and that's not the kinds of decisions that we're usually that interested in. This is true. This is true. Uh, he he was he stepped down as editor in chief. Um, yeah, and that's then right. Was replaced by Axel Alonso, who is also stepped down as editor-in-chief because now it is our good friend Akira Yoshida, I, I mean C.B. Sabolsky. C.B. Sabolsky, that's right. Who I would love to do a profile episode about the career of C.B. Sabolsky because that guy is uh, controversial, but I, he's controversial in that way where um, his greatest successes are very uh, wildly hailed. And I think that because uh, he's made some personal choices that, uh, you know, for good reason, rub people the wrong way, the friction between his good deeds and his bad deeds are, uh, is, uh, are not, he's not really scrutinized in a way that I, I wish it was. Um, Messy dude. I guess we should start. We should probably start talking about the book we came here to talk about. We could. Maybe. Yeah. We could. I'd be really interested to do more about Marvel Knights just because it, we had that mini series a few couple years ago spearheaded by Donny Case, and everyone was really excited that they were bringing Marvel Knights back. But then it was just a mini series, which was kind of disappointing because personally, I. And this is something that I've put in the multiversity wish list, basically, of Marvel for the last couple of years. Is I want them to bring back their imprints. I think some of their strongest work has come from their different imprints, their Max imprint. I mean, Icon doesn't exist anymore because they don't want to deal with creators' rights because they want <laughs> to own it all because Disney. Uh, yes, that's a... <laughs> that is a uh, gently put way, but I agree. I, DC has been doing a lot of experiments with imprints in the last couple of years, and I think it's been wildly successful. If Marvel did imprints in the style that DC is doing it now, mm -hmm. I think that Marvel would crush it. Because generally, I find that Marvel um, is a little bit more organized than DC with stuff like that, and they have a little bit more follow-through, which is a very low bar I'm setting here. But I feel like DC, their con their, the continuity reboots or the editors are getting fired and replaced, and so there's a lot yeah. of big changes. But Marvel, there's at least a, you know, you can get a good five years of consistency. DC was hiring for their imprints. They would hire an editor to, to curate, basically. A good example is they hired uh, Gerard Way, goth icon and frontman of My Chemical Romance, whose imprint was called Young Animal. And he wrote some of the comics, but he also got to hire people to do what sort of uh, DC comics they would want to do. And they were weird and psychedelic and um, kind of angsty. And I liked them a lot. I don't know who Marvel would hire, but, like, imagine if they started hiring back, I don't know, Kelly Sue DeConnick or Ed Brubaker or Jim Michael Straczynski, writers from whose heyday was maybe 10 years ago in Marvel, who could come back in, in a more editorial, managerial position. I think that would be rad. Or, or even expand it out and start not finding new talent necessarily, but finding talent from other aspects of comics. I This would never happen because I don't think they would want to accept the position but imagine if c spike trotman got to run an imprint i would love to see what what, what would happen the name's familiar to me but what's a couple of uh, c spike trotman titles trotman is the i don't know CEO. they run iron circus comics which is basically the premier self-publishing company out there i'm looking at some titles uh, trouble every day i'm familiar with as well as uh, the mob goes wild is something i've heard of yeah, they they both do not like Smut Peddler, I've never read but heard of. Oh yeah. Smut Peddler. Smut Smut Peddler Grey, which is or Silver, which is about older people. It's a fantastic lineup of, of stuff, both webcomics becoming go, going to print or original graphic novels or series and in that way. And it's a clarity of vision that I think would be interesting and clearly they know how to run an editorial position. 
I'm sold. I, I, I hereby put you in charge of that, Elias. I, I want you to start. I don't think they would ever want to work for Marvel, though. That, that I think, is the hang-up. And I don't think Marvel would ever hire someone who would challenge them on their bullshit. That's why I'm putting you in charge, because you're <laughs> going you're gonna to massage all these egos and, uh, and create a more inclusive and uh, forward-thinking Marvel Comics. We, we can hope. We can hope. Uh, but we're not looking forward today. We're looking back. <laughs> we're looking back to Marvel Knights, and we're looking back to bullet points. We should probably talk about J. Michael Straczynski, the writer of this comic, for a little bit. I think we've mentioned him in the on the show in the past. I would say, knowing you and knowing your taste, Elias, J. Michael Straczynski is like your number one guy, right? He is. Yeah. I mean, I talked kind of a bit ad nauseum about him during our— I didn't get nauseumed. Uh, time... <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> during the uh our history with marvel episode i think it was episode 48 or 49 49 when we were talking about that and i brought up you know kind of where i was introduced to to j michael straczynski but i have been i've probably read 90 percent of the comics he's published both in and out of marvel i mean i'm currently reviewing babylon 5 for the website working my way through that well yeah let's so uh starting at the b well, I guess there's jumping around. So what's yeah. interesting to me about—let's jump around a little bit because um, the first thing I think is interesting to note about J. Michael Straczynski is that uh, I, it's clear he always was a fan of comics, but his career didn't start as comics. He started in no. TV, and he kind of was a normie. I, I, if you look at his TV filmography, he wrote a bunch of episodes of Murder, She Wrote, which is not really something that's okay. in a lot of comic writers. All right, uh, so— I'm only interjecting because so I re- recently within the last month has read his autobiography Becoming Superman. Yes, which I very much want to read. It sounds uh, fascinating. It is a fascinating autobiography. It's fantastic. Good, easy read. Well, easy well, in terms of heavy. It, it flies subjects. by. Heavy subjects, and he kind of lays out a lot of the vagaries of the heavy subjects early on. But his career, it truly is super weird. But Murder She Wrote was much later in his TV career than it w- than it would seem based on the number of episodes but he basically worked I don't want, I'm not I'm, I'm not trying to choose my words carefully necessarily but he he worked his first writing gig was an episode of the Twilight Zone and okay. because he got that one live action episode he was able to be hired for all of these other shows even though he it was just like a one time thing that he got kind of lucky that he was able to do it which says a lot about the tv industry in general but he primarily worked in animation and this is where a lot of people might know him from he was one of the co-creators of the real ghostbusters the tv or one of of the the co-runners uh the animated series he was there for one season then he left then he came back after uh, a season or so drama we will not get into go read the book it's far more interesting when you read it there that story i'm familiar with from uh, other sources from what i understand though when he was in college he was into cartoons and stuff and i think his buddies Mm -hmm. in college were less interested and he sent a spec script in for uh, he-man and the masters of the universe and on the strength of that script they took him on him he that was his like first regular staff writing job and through that he um went on to co-create uh the character of she-ra who is uh, very popular on her Noel Stevenson pen Netflix series right now? Mm-hmm. But uh, d- d- we would not have Shira if not for J. Michael Straczynski's uh, particular sensibilities in writing those '80s cartoons, which I, which I think is a great like framing of um, 
of his sensibilities and style as a writer for like the rest of his career is that when you give him He-Man, he comes back with She-Ra. And like like I said, I, he didn't necessarily come up with it in the same way. They actually didn't want to give him co-creator credits, and I don't think he got any of them, any of the co-creators got co-creator credit on the show when it was airing because it would have cost them more money. Naturally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the story. That's going to be the story of a lot of comics and cartoons. Yeah, yeah. But he's worked on a lot of, lot of stuff across the, the years, in and out of TV, in and out of movies, in and out of books and, and comics and whatnot. Well, th- there's a couple of interesting turning points, I think, because the first one is, like you said, he created Babylon 5. And Babylon 5 is like ob- which is something I've, I've never seen. I tried getting into it in like 2010, and I'm mm-hmm. going to try again because um, I know it's something I would like. But that's like really his baby and his brainchild is Babylon yes. 5. And Babylon 5 is like hugely uh, changes the landscape of television in ways <laughs> that I think people don't realize because Babylon 5 was the first TV show that intentionally had stories that started at the beginning of the season and ended at the end of the season because there wasn't streaming or anything. So if you missed an episode of Babylon 5, you like were just kind of screwed. You have to pray for the networks to put on a rerun. And that, that was like real risky. That was a real risky move in 1993. And even more so, it was on an untested cable channel that was brand new. It was one of the debut shows on it. I think it's the only one that survived the whole thing. Actually, it outlasted the channel. It got four seasons in, the channel collapsed, and then TNT had to pick up the final season. So they almost did not have all five seasons, which was that's a whole thing. And I don't really know how it shakes out in the show. I haven't seen past where I am in season three intentionally. So I'm excited to get there and see what's, go- what's what. For those who are trying trying to watch it for the first time, the first season is pretty rough. It's still, it's still, I still think it's very good, but it's definitely less consistent in quality than future seasons. And that can make it harder to get in into, especially now. Back then, it probably was less so. Babylon 5 is like, is really groundbreaking, really forward thinking, I think ahead of its time in a lot of ways. And then there's another interesting turning point in his career that I think it's worth uh, turning to for a second. Mm-hmm. And that's. Uh, he writes the screenplay to the, um, I don't think this is a particularly well-regarded movie, but the 2009 film Ninja Assassin, starring yeah. K-pop uh, star Rain. I think Naomi Harris is in that movie. Um, I remember being in college when this came out, and I was like, oh, that looks like something I would see, and then I just never bothered. So it was, I, I apparently was wrong. But Ninja Assassin is notable because it was produced by the Wachowskis of, of The Matrix fame. And that's where uh, Straczynski meets the Wachowskis. And from what I understand, they, be- they become um, friends and collaborators for a while. And they eventually go on to create a TV show that's very near and dear to my heart, and that's uh, Sense8. I love that series. It I love that series. It's a shame too. it got canceled and never made it past two seasons. Um, I love the messy last episode that tries to fill like six seasons <laughs> into one hour. I think it's a masterpiece of chaos. They tried. But so this morning, I was talking to uh, my girlfriend about J. Michael Straczynski's career, and uh, we came to the conclusion that just in the circles he travels with, J. Michael Straczynski seems like the kind of guy who gets invited to a lot of orgies, and then he sits by the buffet table and is just, like, really encouraging, and everyone's happy he's there, but he doesn't really participate directly. (laughs) Um, That was our take on um, what happens if you get, like, pulled into the Wachowski circle in the early 2010s, but, like, you're J. Michael Straczynski and you're this big, shy, affable nerd. Yeah, yeah, you know what? That's <laughs> he's a buffet table orgy man. That sounds sounds about right. 
um, is how I would characterize him. But that also, like, um, I think he, um, I don't know much about his uh, personal politics, although a lot of it comes through in his work. He seems very uh, progressive-minded, and he's very into um, issues of gender and sexual identity, right? Like, the fact that when he was presented with He-Man, he was like, but where's my, where's She-Ra? Where's the female version of this character? Yeah, and in the real Ghostbusters, the character of Janine, the whole reason he, basically the whole reason he left is because the studio was like, oh, you got to change her. You got to make her like every other female character in an 80s Saturday morning cartoon. And he was like, no, people love, people love her the way she is. They're like, no, 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 no. You got, you got to make her like this. And he was like, I'm out. Yeah, well, and that's actually um, him leaving over those sorts of disputes is going to be a pretty common theme as we look to his comic career, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, actually, if you look at his TV career, that defines it for like a decade. So read, read Becoming Superman. I, I definitely, it's um... he charts it all, and it's just a fantastic read. Well, the thing, the thing that's intriguing to me about becoming Superman is he talks about his childhood, and that sounds wild to me. Mm-hmm. Because, um, so I, you, you read it, and I didn't, so you, you fill me in on these details. But his father from what I understand, was how, how, do you, how would you characterize his father's uh, ideological leanings? Garbage human. Well, uh, gar- garbage more human. specifically, more specifically, yeah, a Nazi. Yeah. I and that's like, not being hyperbolic. That's what I was wondering. I know he was like a right-wing sleaze, but he was like a no, neo-Nazi. No, his, his, no, not a neo-Nazi, a Nazi Nazi. Like a throwback Nazi? Like a, like a retro Nazi? So he was 16. Straczynski was his, uh, mo- J. Michael. The, his, J. Michael Straczynski's father and his grandparents, the, a whole thing with the, he charts in like the first, the first chapter, the saga of how his parents or his grandparents and his parents, all of the, the drama there, why they came to America, how they came to America. But in 1939, his grandmother and his father went back to Poland and they were there throughout the rest of the war. And they were essentially, they were taken in and they were, they were friendly with the Gestapo and then the Nazis in that area. Did they return uh, for the purpose of being collaborate, Nazi collaborators? That's never elucidated. I don't think, I don't know if he knows. Because at the end, he, does, he doesn't wrap up every dangling question there might be because he doesn't, he's not given most of the answers. It's, it's a shameful past. So, so the the thing to me, and this is the reason why I'm so interested in in the book. I, I'm always interested in stories where people are coming from uh, these very hateful homes, but they somehow manage to learn lessons about love and compassion. And where are they learning them from? Like this is a question that I, I'm always uh, fascinated by. And it sounds like with Straczynski, uh, his dad was deliberately trying to indoctrinate him into this Nazi philosophy. And the only thing, not the only thing, but um, and the major thing that stood in the way of that was Straczynski's love of Superman comics. Yeah, that that is one of the big one of the big themes throughout is specifically Superman and like what would Superman do and, and thinking in a mindset that's not that isn't like his his father, who is is real bad. It's it gets it's a very dark book. Yeah, per, uh, personally as well as politically, it, uh, it sounds yeah. like a, that was um, a difficult house to live in, to say it very, 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 oh, very mildly. Yeah, I, I think that might be the understatement of the decade. Yeah, I, I, and I apologize to J. Michael, whose uh, work I uh, respect very much. 
if it sounds like I'm making light of a tough situation. I just, I, I think it's like real fascinating that especially, so uh, I have been, um, and this is going to date this episode a little bit, but I've been seeing some of the announcements coming out of DC Fandom and there's a lot of dated. I, th- I think you're gonna you're gonna have the audience going. When the fuck did they record this? Yeah, this episode is uh, being recorded at least a month early. But uh, in DC fandom, we're, we're getting all these uh, announcements and peeks at these very dark looking DC projects. I don't mind it. I like my uh, Robert Pattinson being really goth. Uh, I I just think of the wasted opportunity that the right Superman story can save this kid from the from from being raised in a uh, literal Nazi household. So the Superman is doing. Superman comics can do real powerful anti-racist work. Just like having them get Superman get murdered by Harley Quinn for laughs is just like that's fine, but uh seems like a wasted opportunity to me sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. It's I think this is going to be a debate and a conversation that a lot of that we always have that that will come up and and constantly return. And I think that's okay because I I think most most superheroes can contain multitudes. You can have Golden Age and Silver Age Superman and then you can also have you know, injustice and whatever uh, the fuck Frank Sun. Miller did with All Star Batman and Robin, an ironic classic, a classic of uh, irony. Yeah, but yeah, injustice. Injustice is a great example of a fantastic work that's much darker than some of the very very hopeful stuff from the Silver Age or even like All Star Superman. I don't want to create a false dichotomy with injustice in particular. Uh, there was a bunch of issues that are the some of the early Tom Taylor issues are among some of my favorite issues of Superman comics. Mm-hmm. There, with, there's flashbacks to show what the Man of Steel is like, but we're talking to, we're getting deep into comics that weren't written by J. Michael Straczynski, and I want to talk a little bit about his Marvel career. Yeah. So when we were talking about um, our early experiences with Marvel, Elias, you said your first Marvel comic was Straczynski Spider-Man, is that correct? That is correct. Now, I've read a bunch of Straczynski Spider-Man, but never beginning to end in order. So just like, I know some highlights, but like what characterizes Straczynski Spider-Man? What makes it different than other runs? For one thing, I think it's one of the few runs that actually does something new with Peter. It moves him from his traditional comfort zone, being, you know, nerdy high school college kid who's always on the down and out, and moves him forward in a way that doesn't feel at odds with his character. Because I've read... Like I said, I didn't read a lot of Dan Slott. I read a little bit. I read specifically, I think, the first couple volumes of Worldwide. And Peter Parker, tech billionaire, felt off. Not that he wouldn't be able to be, you know, smart enough uh, to do this, but it didn't feel like the right fit for the character. He's at his best when he's scrounging and and kind of living that hectic, uh, difficult lifestyle. But what makes Straczynski's run keep that while still moving him out is that he's now a teacher uh at a high school like it's a chemistry a teacher, teacher right yeah i believe specifically a chemistry teacher which one gives him e- easy access to the stuff he needs to make his web fluid <laughs> that's the detail that i love is that uh he's like kind of walter whiting but instead of making meth he's making web fluid yeah and he's yeah he's just kind of living his life he's he's aged for he's aged up a little bit he's an adult he's doing adult things and he's living a married life. He's living with Mary Jane. And that dynamic, I don't think has been, was not stronger beforehand, but 
a lot of writers never know what to do with married superhero couples. So they either make it really, really rocky or break them up right away or whatnot. That's like that's why DC had a whole thing when they had the new 52. No heroes in relationships. They must be sad all the time. Uh, yeah, that was that a second part editorializing mandate. on my part. But they, they had a mandate, an editorial mandate where no superhero could be in a committed relationship. Uh, they couldn't. They, they, I believe it was uh, no one could be married. And uh, thus, uh, people were getting together and breaking up. And they would, yeah. they would uh, writers would write characters in years-long relationships. They would write a proposal, and then they would get fired for their trouble. Yeah, is a, a real incident that happened. I mean, I believe uh, the the Batwoman story I'm thinking of. They quit rather than um, change the story they were intending. But yeah, yeah they, they quit. were forced they off had, the book. They had finished the scripts for the arc they had written, and DC didn't use either of those scripts. I think one of them, one of the issues was even drawn, uh, and they didn't use it. They replaced it with a zero-year tie-in, and then had like did a jump forward in the issue after. So that's a whole thing. But that I think the. The marriage and Peter Parker kind of being able to keep his essence while not being stuck as a teen or like a college student and mo- moving him into the adult world was it characterizes it. it it's a very street level grounded story even if they're dealing with energy vampires from another dimension who have come back for Sp- Spider-Man because he's a se- uh, mystical totem or you know some of the skeevier arcs like uh, since past, which is basically, what if Gwen had kids, and those kids were Norman Osborns? Yeah, that's a uh, the, the artwork on those pages is very difficult to to look at. But yeah, I, I do. do the, like I was. It. I'm glad you brought that up though, because um, all of that. Because my strongest memory of the Straczynski parts that, uh, that I've read, or my favorite stories, the one that stuck with me in a good way, are when he kind of like went into this like weird mysticism direction with Spider Man. And um, I, I think that reflects his, his forward thinkingness, where not only did he move Peter Parker out of his comfort zone, but he put Spider-Man into the sorts of adventures that he hadn't really been on in that way. A lot of that stuff has been really incorporated into the Spider-Man mythos. Like, it took a little while for people to get comfortable with writing it, but once other writers started exploring the crazy situations and characters and worlds he created, that became like an mm-hmm. integral part of modern Spider-Man comics. Yeah. A lot of Straczynski's contributions, like the marriage and the chemistry teacher stuff, later writers tried to undo, but the interdimensional energy vampires and the ancient conspiracies and the totemic spider powers that link Peter Parker to the uh, to trickster gods, like all of that ended up being really done in cool ways by later writers, and I appreciate those contributions. Yeah. And I kind of I do wish more had been kept from his run. Maybe not the skivier parts. The purpose of one more day at Marvel. The, the notorious one more day story, which uh, drastically retconned uh, the Spider-Man continuity in ways I think you're about to get into. I am. Yeah. So in I think about 2011, DC Comics, Joe Quesada, and I believe Axel Alonso. I believe you had... mean Marvel Comics. God. Fuck. We really got DC Marvel on the Comics. mind, folks. We apologize. God. It's a Marvel podcast. Yeah. We love Marvel, but just like DC is really hot today. Yeah. Hot, lukewarm. DC's a lot of temperatures, some... and Marvel's kind of a background yeah. radiation. Yeah. Cosmic. Yeah. Background Cosmic radiation. background radiation. Essentially, One More Day was the attempt by Marvel Comics, which has succeeded thus far, to undo Peter Parker's marriage to Mary Jane because. We can't have nice things. The stated reason was uh, they felt that it made him feel too old and thus young readers would uh, not be able to relate to the character. Which is bullshit and they should have just brought in a new one like Miles Morales. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot, a lot of ways to handle it. And I'm not even opposed to um, one more day in theory, but yeah. it the execution is so poor. I mean, so from what I understand, this was the breaking point for Straczynski, right? Yeah, it was also it was planned approximately to be his final arc. I don't know if he would have continued. He might have. But one more day was the straw that broke the camel's back. And he was like, all right, I'm done. And he he had planned it kind of as an end. And he was going to use it, which is the funniest part. He was using one more day to undo Sin's past. That was his biggest reason for His earlier story with Gwen and Norman. Yeah. So he was like, I made a huge mistake with the way I handled that story with a lot of it. Because, again... There were some ideas that could have been that could have worked in that, but ninety percent of the execution was not not done well. So he mostly wanted to undo that. I would be very interested to talk to him one day about what his uh, thought process was on why he thought it was a good idea and why he changed his mind because both decisions are really fascinating to me. And partially how editorial changed who it's supposed to be because I think originally it was supposed to be Peter and Gwen's kids, not. Norman and Gwen's kids. I had heard that it was supposed to be Harry and Gwen's kids at one which point. Which also would would have worked. Yeah, which makes sense. It's like um, that's a little bit lurid. Like, you know, Gwen is cheating on Peter with his best friend. Real soap opera stuff. But not cheating on Peter with his best friend's father, which is gross. Deeply creepy. And where, who, that father is a, like, notorious serial killer who murders her and then making his murder of her about, like, covering up their kids together. That, yeah. All of yeah. that is, like, really yeah. upsetting and sexist and gross. Maybe one day we'll read it. I don't know. Maybe. Since past, Probably I would, not. like, not want to subject myself to that. There's just a haunting image. And I don't know image. if we want to subject the audience to that more than what we've already done. There's a hauntingly drawn sex scene between Norman and Gwen that if I never have to look at it again, I'd be happy. But it shows up on my Twitter feed oh, more God. than I'm comfortable with. Um, but anyway, Back to one more day. Yeah, but one more day... Um, <laughs> That was, This comes out um, not too long after Civil War, over the famous Civil War crossover in mm. 2005 or nearabouts. Yeah, they also wanted to—no, uh, Civil War was 2006, and then there were a couple years in between where uh, Peter Parker was running around in, in the Black Spider-Man right, suit. Right, back in black. Hiding. I actually really like back in black. Yeah, and then Aunt May gets shot. Yes, by, by the Kingpin's uh, goons. Yeah, and so One More Day has— Actually, it, it has three stated effects. It is supposed to save Aunt May, break up the marriage of, of Peter and Mary Jane, and erase everyone knowing Peter's identity so that he can go back to being, you know, having small. Having a and, secret identity. Yeah, having a secret identity. And really, the, so the tragedy to me with One More Day, like, um, I know that there's people who on paper object to... Um, the why is he trying to save Aunt May? She's an old lady, and why would he get rid of his marriage? And that I, but to me, it's the responsibility of the story to answer those questions. Like those are the, I those are logical questions, but they they should have an answer. And I really believe in my heart that if Straczynski wanted to write that story, he would have had compelling answers to those questions. But that's when he just quits. He just drops the book. He's like, no way. I disagree with this storytelling decision. And so it's Joe Quesada who picks it up and has the writing credit on it. And Joe Quesada, like I said earlier, he was an artist turned editor, but he was never a writer, and you can see why. His, um, I think his artwork has been at times very good, and I think he, as an editor, he clearly was very strong because he brought the company out of bankruptcy. He discovered a lot of uh, successful and influential creators. I, like, I'm, I have pretty warm feelings overall towards Joe Quesada's uh, work in Marvel, but his writing is 
not good. It's pretty atrocious. And One More Day is like a, a, a horridly written comic. Yeah, I don't. I don't think we can lay it all at Joe Casada's feet. I do think part of it was Straczynski's heart wasn't in it, so he may not have, you know, put together as good a story as he could have if he really believed in it. Well, Straczynski's not even credited as the writer on it, is he? I He's think... credited on the the first couple issues. So he quits and in the middle asked, of the story. Yeah, and he asked for his name to be removed from the the book. That's why. So I've I've read it in trade, and I, I don't think he's credited at all on the trade. Yeah, he does. He didn't want to be associated with it because he, he didn't believe it, and uh, we don't know how much editorial had their fingers in. Um, he doesn't get into a lot of that drama in the books, which is fair. I think he still has like a cordial but tense professional relationship with a lot of those people. I think he's got more than more than a, a little more than cordial because he's now at AWA writing the Res- resistance with Axel Alonso and I believe Joe Casada. Well, that's cool. Maybe he's just angrier at Joe and not Axel. Well, and I, I think it took the. I think I really think uh, we're gossiping about people who we uh, yeah. have only met in passing here or not met at all. I have said hello to Straczynski before, and I've exchanged words with uh, Joe Casada before. And I saw Axel Alonso at a bar one time, but we did not speak. He was with Dan Slott. <laughs> In Brooklyn. Yeah, it seems to me like feelings were really hurt and it took a couple of years for them to cool things off because there's one other um, book I want to talk about that Straczynski wrote for Marvel before we get to bullet points. All right, which one? And this is a book that's actually very important to my Marvel fandom, and that is J. Michael Straczynski's uh, run on Thor. Yes. Are you? You're, I mean, you're a big Thor fan. You're a big Straczynski fan. I've got to assume you love Straczynski Thor. I do. It's been a long time since I've read it, though. I'm looking at my copy. I have the hardcover. I read it basically concurrently with Amazing Spider-Man, and so yeah. Oh, I didn't even know he wrote some Fantastic Four. Yeah, I've um I've read a little bit of that. I think he collaborated with some other writers in that era. It was mm-hmm. a pretty spotty. But uh, I I brought up Thor because Straczynski is put on Thor. Thor is a character who's really interesting to me because he almost there's very few bad runs of Thor. There there's far more good runs than bad runs, and that's not the case with most uh, superhero characters. This is true. Case in point, Spider-Man. Right, Spider-Man. But Spider-Man's also had 12 times as many books. Right, and a, but a lot of those books are really bad, but Thor, there's usually not that many books, and they're fantastic. And so Straczynski Thor to me was um, probably, if I'm being honest, one of the two or three comics that got me into following monthly Marvel books more than anything else. Really? Yes, so I got back into Marvel in 2007, and I'm reading Civil War and Secret uh, Invasion's about to come out and Dark Reign and things like that. And that's also right around the time, 2008 is the year that uh, Iron Man comes out, the movie. And I remember just getting hyped for that. I was just getting back into comics, and I was like, that, I see the trailers on YouTube. That, the movie looks rad. And then it was rad. And then there's a Thor movie coming out. So I say, I, I, I say to myself, what's the Thor comic I should read to prepare for this movie? And it's all the word points to that it's going to be based on this Straczynski run. So I end up picking up the Straczynski run, which was, I think, about to conclude around the time that the movie's coming out. And it's fantastic. It's about Ragnarok has occurred and the gods are dead, but uh, Thor returns from the dead and it's her- because gods continue to live on in the hearts of mortals. There's some cheesy stuff like that. It's about Thor is rebuilding Asgard in Broxton, Oklahoma. I guess the plot is less is less significant to me than um, uh, it's drawn by the great Olivier Coipel, uh, who puts Thor in armor. He's no longer wearing like a superhero costume. He looks like he's wearing um, like a like a tunic and like a heavy duty medieval armor, mm-hmm. which is the look that I think most people are kind of used to see him seeing it. But he was wear, like a more of a spandex guy before this run. One of the I think the best redesigns Quipel did of his many excellent costume designs. But 
the 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 key to what makes this Straczynski run great to me is that before Straczynski, Thor comics, uh, the dialogue was always written like a bastardization of Shakespeare. Everyone saying thee and thou and mayhaps and forsooth. Uh, it's got that kind of style. And Straczynski was like, nah, man, those Lord of the Rings movies were sweet. Let's just have everyone talk like Lord of the Rings. And that's what he does. And I feel like that's the that's what brings Thor back is basing it heavily on the Lord of the Rings movie in terms of visual style and like the scripting style. There was like a poetry to the way he wrote the dialogue that I really love. Yeah, it's it's a short run. But it's a good run. Well, so that's another one where uh, that book gets canceled prematurely. And again, I actually think, from what I understand, um, the bad blood due to him quitting Spider-Man made him also leave Thor at the same time. He left all the Marvel books he was in the middle of. So Thor ends very abruptly. He does one double-sized issue and leaves. But now here's where I come into this in a big way. because So I'm reading Straczynski Thor. I'm loving it. And then I say, that's it? You're canceling the book in the middle of this amazing uh, Thor's about to fight Doctor Doom, the greatest villain of all time, and you just end it? Um, (laughs) But then I I see, no, the book is uh, continuing with a new numbering and a new writer. I loved the writing on this new Thor after Straczynski. It was uh, doing the same kind of thing. But even better, I remember uh, Baldur the Brave turns to his Vikings at one point and says, we must to Asgard once again. And uh, my heart skipped a beat with just like how cheesy and amazing that was. So I look at the writer. I say, who wrote this amazing Thor issue? And it's a guy named Kieran Gillen. And that was the first time I knowingly read a Kieran Gillen comic. And much like J. Michael's your guy, Kieran Gillen is my guy. Yeah. Um, but, But so Kieran ends up being, he comes in to be like the the pinch hitter to back up Marvel. They just needed someone real fast who wasn't doing something else. Kieran was available. He comes in and does Thor, and then he becomes probably one of the three most important Marvel writers in the next 10 years. Yeah. So I think that that Thor run is um, spectacular. That whole run, the Straczynski part and the Gillen run, I would love if they deliberately collaborated on something. I think that would be unbeatable. I think that would be pretty cool. I don't know if Straczynski would come back to corporate superhero comics. He's mostly done with comics at this point that's true he's done um issues here and there and he um yeah he does backup stories for marvel these days he um contributed to, uh some to issues and anthologies in the last three years for marvel mm-hmm. he contributed to marvel comics 1000 so i i think there's good faith and uh the feelings uh the hurt feelings are a little smoothed over yeah um, but yeah, that's just, um, Straczynski's got like a prolific Marvel career. He's really important to, he's extre- the most important guy to you. And he's also very important to me. So I'm really happy that we read this book, uh, bullet points that I had never even heard of. I never looked twice at. Hello, we're the hosts of the Multiversity Manga Club podcast. I'm Emily. I'm Zach. And I'm Walter. Each month we pick a manga to read and discuss among ourselves. Past books include Monster... A Silent Voice, and Pokemon Adventures. We also look back on the past month's installments of Weekly Shonen Jump, discussing the highs and lows from the Viz Anthology. We've even discussed notable manga adaptations like Netflix's Death Note. At the end of each episode, we announce next month's book club pick so you can read along with us. We're always open to suggestions for future books as well. So join us on the first Friday of every month on MultiversityComics.com, Apple Podcasts, or your podcatcher of choice. Now that we've had our pretty big intro and walk up to the book, here's the book. So, bullet points. Think it's an Elseworlds story, essentially. That's a DC term again, man. <sighs> Which basically just means what it's a what if. There we go. There's the Marvel term. Yeah, Marvel calls it a what if. <laughs> what if 
Steve Rogers hadn't become Captain America. Specifically, what if instead of Erskine being murdered on the day of Steve Rogers' transformation post, you know, surgery? Uh, Post-procedure? Procedure. Post-weird goo injected into his veins? Goo injection and Vita Ray bombardment? Post-transformation. It's, Transformation. Yeah, there we That's go. That's a good uh, it's, succinct word. It's 24 hours beforehand. So Erskine is killed. Steve Rogers does not become the super soldier because they don't have the serum anymore. They don't know where, uh, how to make it, don't know how to synthesize it. So instead, Steve Rogers becomes Iron Man in the new okay. governmental Iron Man program. And from there, now, we watch the ripples fall. Now, when I, you told me we we're going to read this, I knew J. Michael Straczynski, I knew the title, and that was it. I Googled it because I needed to get myself a copy, which I um, I ended up reading this on Comixology, of all things, although it's on Marvel Unlimited. But I had such an unpleasant time with Marvel Unlimited oh, that I God. ended up buying it for $8 from Amazon, which goes against uh, how I would have preferred to do this, and that shows you how terrible Marvel Unlimited is as software. It's pretty bad. If anyone working for Marvel is hearing this and your feelings are a little hurt, like, I think it's worth hurting your feelings. Marvel Unlimited is a garbage piece of software. It's terrible to search anything. Fix your damn search engine. Yeah, for starters, fix your search engine. Fix everything. I, I keep getting logged out in the middle of a page turn. But when I Googled it, I just saw that it was a what-if tale where Steve Rogers doesn't become Captain America. And that's all I knew going in. Elias, my bud, mm-hmm. let me tell you, this book, like, surprised me at every issue. <laughs> I love that. I just that. didn't know what was didn't know what was going to happen, and he really swings for the fences. I, uh, some stuff was, um, you could have guessed it, I guess, but I didn't. And then I, I, you know, I was just, oh, man, no way. Every every issue of this. It was fantastic. I, we have read now, four, this is our fourth book club book? Yeah, we had Kree-Scroll War, we had Young Avengers, we had Modox 11. Modox 11, yeah. I love Modox 11. That's, like, personally a book I really love and I boost. Um, Young Avengers, I think, is really great and has historical significance. Kree-Scroll War is considered by many to be a classic. This was my favorite book of the four books we've read so far. Yes, I believe it. It's really tightly plotted, and I think what I love most about Bullet Points is it's not trying to be a huge, expansive story it's just trying to tell it's trying to to reimagine the beginnings of the marvel universe as we know it and just lay that foundation and be like this is and just explore it just explore how certain changes might have affected other changes and what things wouldn't change i think that's my favorite part of this really because so many alternate history especially in comics Everything especially is in Marvel different. What if especially comics. Marvel What If. Every single thing is different. One change makes everything else wildly different. But here, he's like, these things would have changed, and you can follow the ripples out. You can see why and how he lays out the logic, and it makes sense, even if you may not agree that X, Y, or Z would happen or uh, whatnot. Like, the, the whole thing with Peter Parker being kind of a, a slacker bad boy because Uncle Ben isn't there. Eh, I don't necessarily know if I agree with that characterization, but at the it's same time... It's a little t- unkind to Aunt May's uh, Yeah, it's a little, little slight, and it's a little bit sexist. It's like, he needs a strong male influence. But then again, the character of Uncle Ben is such a tempering influence. He's so kind and so gentle that losing him would have hurt Aunt May, and not having him around could have made... Peter Parker's teenage years more rebellious than, you know, the super bookish nerdy one he was. So uh, you can see, you can make an argument for either way and how it's Uncle Ben's personality and the lack of the presence that influences Peter's decisions. 
Um, so right at the beginning, Doctor Erskine, Erskine, Erkson? I think Doctor Erskine. Erskine is killed, and then you see, uh, and one thing leads to another, and Steve is uh, Steve Rogers, the man we know as Captain America, goes into the meeting with uh, General Chester Phillips, and um, he's getting the debriefing of what is now the Iron Man program. This is where I complete this book completely won me over because there's all this attention to these little logistics where they're explaining stuff like the Iron Man suit is so primitive and bulky in because uh in original Marvel it's invented in the 50s but now it's being invented in the 40s so there's so much machinery that only a really tiny guy could fit in it and I was like oh I'm in that's genius and then um th- they. Uh, are so worried that the Nazis are going to steal the technology that they end up uh, have, building this mechanical heart interface that will kill the pilot and blow up the machine if it ever gets captured by enemies, which uh, is painful and a sacrifice, but it also um, preserves the fact that not just anyone can go into the suit. It needs to be Steve Rogers. Changes why the heart powers it. The core of the character remains, which is there's this inseparable heart that keeps maybe not keeps but but is is necessary for for the interface between the person and the machine like tony stark's heart thing but instead of it being to keep tony alive it's to prevent steve from dying which is which is an important distinction even if it doesn't sound like it well and it leads to a a great thematic just a line that keeps getting repeated where uh, everyone says uh to steve um uh, you know, uh, every they say I came in knowing that Iron Man would be strong, but the thing I'm going to remember is how big your heart is. And they keep on repeating uh, how big his heart is, which is ironic because he doesn't have a physical heart at this point. He has a cyborg machine, which I really liked. It's great because that's the that's the theme of the Captain America movie, and that's the thing that we all love about Steve Rogers is he's just like a just he's such a good guy he's got a big heart and so by so when you put him in the story of iron man his kind-heartedness is going to get tied into the like machine heart stuff and that's why the that's why this book sung for me so much is that when he makes these changes and when he like uh remixes the different characters in the different stories it it sh- like you it, it shows something new about iron man and about steve rogers because you're combining them that way yeah without really losing necessarily the essence of the characters like the 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 superhero parts like iron man is still the important parts of iron man are there it's it's not this unrecognizable character being called iron man yeah and he looks like the classic big bulky yeah. chunky iron lung iron man suit but so then um the next character major character we get introduced to is peter parker and um, like you said, Uncle Ben dies earlier because uh, the, the uh, one thing leads to another. There's a butterfly effect, and the death, death of Dr. Erskine is also the death of Uncle Ben. So Peter never knows his Uncle Ben. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and one thing leads to another, and Peter ends up being at that gamma bomb site instead of uh, Bruce Banner and Rick Jones. And Peter Parker becomes the Hulk. But again, it becomes this different story because Peter Parker is not the same guy as Bruce Banner, but having this unstoppable rage monster in him really shows you the anger that Peter Parker has. And that's like that anger is a really important, the anger and the guilt, right? Like that's what motivates him to be Spider-Man is um, all these strong feelings he has. But what if those strong feelings made him green and unstoppable? Yeah. And it's more, it's also very interesting in that instead of it being an adult being hit by all these gamma rays, I think Bruce Banner is ostensibly in in his late 20s in, in the original. He's got a, you know, he's a doctor. He's got a, a master. I, I know comic books yeah, like to speed up an education. But uh, he, we know he like did a lengthy education because he was roommates with every other mad scientist in the Marvel Universe at one point or another. Good point. Yeah. So there's that. With here, it's 
this is a teenager getting hit by the giant rage monster. So That's right. compound the feelings that he would be feeling as just a teenager with this extra whatever, which is makes for, for a more unstable Hulk in, in, in a lot of different ways. That's, you know what? I hadn't even thought of that, but I was more scared of the Hulk here than I, like Bruce Banner. I think I get frustrated with Bruce Banner, depending on how he's written sometimes. Mm-hmm. Bruce Banner will um will rage out and I'll be like, oh my god, Bruce, just like figured this out. But with Peter Parker, I really I had so much sympathy for his anger because uh, he was just a teenager. You know, his brain's not fully formed yet. And imagine if uh, your teenage tantrums were so uncontrollable they could like level a city block. That that was like really teenagers are scary, man. And all he, and kind of like the Hulk, he just wants to be left alone. But he doesn't necessarily have the same wherewithal of to to rein himself back enough. He's just angry Hulk monster who's rampaging through the streets who hurts basically everyone and, and it's everyone and anyone that's around him. I also, we didn't mention, but um, something else I really loved about this mm-hmm. was, so he, uh, Straczynski uh, begins every issue with touches, t- with like a, a, I don't know what to call it, an introduction about bullets. A framing about device. Bullets. Yeah, a framing device where he talks about guns and he talks about bullets. For me... And how I feel about guns and bullets, that you have to handle that in a certain kind of way uh, for me to be enthusiastic about that. But the the angles that he finds, so he talks about the physics of bullets, and they end up being a metaphor for this butterfly effect that he's going for. But then there was also, um, he starts talking about statistics surrounding guns, and there was this amazing part where he was talking about how um, how often people fire guns in the air in celebration, and how often that leads to injury and death. Yeah, collateral damage. Right, and then that's to set up the uh, the theme of collateral damage. But specifically, actually, for that issue, the phrase, what goes up must come down. And that ties into one of our other remixed heroes, Reed Richards and the Fantastic Four, who had their initial space flight, which was in the original comics, you know, on their own and, and kind of unsanctioned and, and loosey-goosey. Renegades. And, yeah, and pushed it think about a decade later, with the full might of the U.S. government, which made it more public, which also meant that they had a lot of enemies because they were full into the Cold War, all because Reed Richards was working with the Iron Man project. Right, because Reed is Steve's handler in this. Mm-hmm. Now, um, let's can we talk about Reed for a second in this? Yeah, I, I wanted to just quickly go back to that, that framing device of the bullets because I thought that was brilliant, as well as making this each issue, while you know you'd want to read all of them, it's easy to enter with them. You pick up one issue, and there's your framing device. It's like here's the theme of this issue. So the second issue is time, space, flesh. All of those are important for, you know, how a bullet can change a life, how it can take a life, and then how all of these different physics things work. So for there, it's, you know, Bruce Banner isn't the one getting irradiated. It is Peter Parker because something changed in time, which changed his location in space, which changed his flesh. But this is also where um, I feel like there's a lot of gun fetishization in comics because it's a stories about strong people who through their force of will... It can make a really make a difference, right? And I think there's a lot of overlap between people who are into that concept and people who think that uh, guns give you power. You see this in a lot of writers writing Punisher. 
Uh, but even in comics where they're, where the characters are anti-gun, like Batman, guns are really fetishized. Where Batman like won't pick up a gun. It's like it's a vampire in holy water or something. It's like he's so anti-gun that uh, the gun gets really elevated. It's like this uh, powerful device. And I feel like um, by unpacking that idea, Straczynski really, um, really undermines the idea that um, guns are powerful. Because he's just explaining the physics and how guns, the physics behind a bullet being shot is like the same as as a rocket trying to fly to the moon, or is the same as like a political movement trying to affect change. And he creates all these metaphors that kind of make guns seem, instead of seeming so special and powerful, they seem really mundane. And this is where, like, if another writer was writing this, um, that would have been a lot weaker for me. But because of Straczynski's, or what I assume are Straczynski's political leanings, he really demystifies guns as this, like, powerful thing, even as he's making a series called Bullet Points, and the whole thing is framed around guns. Like, that's such a tough, uh, a thin line to walk. Uh, that's what, I'm so taken with this. I'm glad I suggested it. I'm glad you suggested it, too. I, you, Elias, you have known I, I do not denigrate Elias' taste, guys. If Elias recommends a comic, it's probably pretty worth reading. Maybe I should pick something terrible for the next book club. Um, I mean, I, I, terrible things are often worth reading. Just uh, not as well, enjoyable as this. This is true. But okay, so uh, the, the Fantastic Force mission is uh, not a renegade thing. It's sanctioned by the U.S. government. There's a lot of eyes on it, and it gets sabotaged, and a bomb explodes. And instead of uh, getting bombarded with cosmic rays and getting fantastic powers— Ben Grimm, Sue, and Johnny Storm all die in the crash, and Reed Richards, um, who had worked with Steve Rogers at Iron Man for many years, is now the only survivor of this, like, terrible astronaut accident. I loved Reed Richards in this. I don't often use that word for Reed Richards, but I loved him. I, I concur. I also don't usually like Reed Richards, but he was great in this. I, I think that by putting him into, like, the spy genre, I guess I'm getting ahead— so after the crash, instead of becoming Mr. Fantastic and becoming an inventor and an imaginot, he basically takes on the role of Nick Fury, and he becomes the spy in charge of S.H.I.E.L.D. I loved this because Reed is very ruthless, and he's a genius. Stories about Reed Richards are often about a guy who's putting his, um, his thoughts ahead of his feelings and his uh, ideas ahead of his morals. But when you put that in the spy genre, it just fits so much better than when you put it in like a upbeat, groovy sci-fi story. Yeah. Cause, and and it, he's deliberately an anti-hero where I think something that frustrates people about Reed is that Reed often accidentally seems to be becoming an anti-hero. Like the story often is like, ah, what Reed's doing is kind of cool if you think about it, and it's not. He's What he's doing is abusing his family. Yeah. But this is making him like a spy loner, and I think that's a really interesting look on him. And it helps that the artist Tommy Lee Edwards absolutely sells Reed Richards as a Nick Fury-style character, which I, I kind of want to just quickly talk about the rest of the team. So Tommy Lee Edwards is the illustrator and colorist on the book. And then John Workman does the letters for the series. So want to get the whole team out there. It's been what, a, li- a little <laughs> 40, 40, to, 40 minutes to an hour since, since really getting into it. Yeah. So I, um, I looked up uh, Tommy Lee Edwards uh, cause the name didn't ring a bell and it turns out I've actually read quite a few comics by him. Um, and what has been consistent is I have almost never liked a comic that he's worked on, and he's always been the best part of that project. Like, he did a comic which I do not regard very highly, which is Marvel 1985 with Mark Millar. I have not read it, but... It's a bad comic, is how I would describe it. But the artwork is really great on this. It's kind of um, 
So bullet points he's doing, it's a, what is it, 2007 when this comic is coming out or nearabouts? Yeah. So this is right at the beginning of digital art starts becoming uh, more and more uh, widely used at Marvel. And you see a lot of early digital coloring techniques. And it's it's a pretty rough transition period, I think. But Tommy Lee Edwards is doing this like painterly style. It looks kind of like an Alex Ross watercolors or oil painting. Yeah, a I'm... little rougher. Uh, yeah, a little rougher than Ross. Ross rough. is is really Alex Ross is like really uh, well processed, but I really like the colors and um, I liked the roughness of the characters. I guess mm-hmm. it reminds me also of um, of the Marvel Max titles that like uh, and the other Marvel Knights t- uh, titles, like uh, the Daredevil comics look a little bit like this. Jessica Jones is a little bit more heavy on the watercolors, but has a similar style. Edwards crushed it, and his and somehow he drew a Reed Richards as sexy. Again, not a word I usually use to describe Reed Richards. <laughs> But Reed Richards was kind of sexy in this. Yeah, yeah, he was. That that was not. I was gonna say that's not the word I was reaching for, but he is. It's it's the mop top and the and the eye patch that does it. He has the smolder. Isn't there's like a panel in issue four where he's just looking at the cam looking at the camera, and I'm like, oh yeah, that's that's sexy Reed Richards. The weird part about I don't love Tommy Lee Edwards's art. But it's the perfect fit for this story. And I think that's what works so well for me. Even if I don't, in the abstract, like it, it it does the job, and it does the job really, really well, as well as the coloring. And it, it fits the tone and the era and does everything it's supposed to do, which isn't just a knock on, like, oh, he's just turning in, you know, crap work, which isn't true. I just think it's not something that, that I love, but... Well, I think I think the the strength of the work because I, I I what I'm hearing from you is um it's the style isn't like your personal favorite kind of style but yeah. what I think is so good here is um there's an element of comics that of comic art that often gets overlooked and that's the way that the artists also have to be actors mm-hmm. and they have to make decisions with how they draw expressions and body language and things like that just like with actors there's a lot of artists who are just okay at that and they're passable and they uh sometimes they go too broad or sometimes they go too subtle but Tommy Lee Edwards in this the acting is fantastic i'm looking at a panel of it's Reed Richards and um he's got uh the, the, he's putting his hand on somebody's shoulder and he's smiling kind of warmly but it's kind of sad because he's just suffered this trauma yeah there's just like so much nuance into the performance of these paintings and he brings a lot of that to the hulk which yeah. can often be, you know, either a little too, you know, reserved or often very over the top, but it's the same three over the top <laughs> expressions. And that's not the case here. The Hulk is expressive without ever losing that, you know, not monstrousness, but the monstrousness, but, but without losing the both I, both the pathos and the fear that we would feel at every time he shows up. And Hulk's a great. I'm glad you brought up his Hulk actually because um, the way he draws Peter Parker as Hulk, I don't love the model for the Hulk. Like I feel like his face is a little bit flat, and I feel like the uh, his musculature is kind of like lacking definition. In the in the MCU movies, they do a good job at they give Hulk a little bit of body hair, which makes him textured, so he doesn't just look like uh, green rubber. Mm-hmm. And his Hulk looks very flat and rubbery, but the face is so expressive that I don't like. Uh, I think that captures the strength and the weakness of his work is that his model work isn't always uh, top notch, but the uh, expressions are like superb. Yeah. All right. So Reed Richards becomes director of Shield, which I thought was like a brilliant coup. I want to see. You know what it is? Also, I think with Reed, 
there is a hypocrisy in the character where the character is often like doing awful things, but he's always doing it with this big smile and he's acting like he's your like best friend and your teacher and your dad, but he's not, he's a creep. And when you put him in a spy story, uh, and he's glowering and he's in the shadows and he's grizzled and he's growling orders at people. Um, <laughs> then he doesn't seem like a hypocrite. And when he's, you know, when he, he you, when he's like, I've thought of all the angles and this is how we're going to do the operation. And we're going to do it my way because I'm the smartest man on earth. He's coming across as an asshole, but it feels on purpose. Yeah. He's more, he's more in his element here than as Mr. Fantastic, which is so interesting. I think that's a, that's a result of, we discussed it a, a little while ago about, you know, tra- the transitions from the Silver to the Bronze Age back in the Kree Scroll War and how a lot of early Marvel is very rooted in kind of the pulp sci fi. And a lot of pulp sci fi heroes are assholes. But because Reed has survived so long and all these characters have survived outside of that original time and framing, as the world around him's changed, and as he's changed, we're start- we really see the the disconnect between the archetype and the way they portray him and the world itself. And it's really dissonant when the two don't recognize each other, when the world doesn't recognize that Reed is being really shitty. Uh, whereas an older story would have brushed it off because that's just how it was. Yeah, and power to Straczynski for capturing so much like. A subtle nuance in these versions of these characters that appear some of them just for an issue or two yeah or or even just a few panels like Stephen strange shows up and the that's the issue kind of talking about how how the ripple effect works on all these other characters and he's like well Stephen strange becomes part of shield because reed richards reached out to him and this is or he was reaching out to people who you know they needed for the iron man program to re, re- revive it and instead of going to see you know the mystic in or or not the ancient one the ancient one in somewhere somewhere in i i don't remember the original story i keep thinking of iron fist and kun lun we'll do, we'll do some doctor strange sometime but it's the ancient one in tibet the ancient one in tibet in Thank the original you. story and so instead of getting on that ship he goes you know to the u.s government and because of that baron Mordo becomes the sorcerer supreme Sort of, and gets royally fucked over by Dormammu. And so the Ancient One sits, refusing to die, waiting for someone to take up the mantle. Which is such a fascinating way of seeing how one small change affects something else. But then we get a splash page of Namor's doing his thing, Daredevil's doing his thing, Charles Xavier is still doing his thing, same with Magneto. I mean, Charles Xavier, all, what we see is we see Charles Xavier pushes a couple fingers to his temple, which is his thing, I grant you, but uh, we don't know much about what that X-Men, because we see the X-Men for a second, and it's actually kind of a weird lineup. Yeah, that's true. But I, w- I would still be, I guess the idea is these heroes still follow the same path to being heroes, even if the world around them has shifted, and thus these other, you know, who and where might have shifted as well. What's so funny, so I zoomed in on, there's one panel where you see the X-Men, and you got Professor X, and he's surrounded by a uh, Wolf- Is that an issue five? Yeah, an issue five. And he's surrounded by a Wolverine, Colossus, Nightcrawler, a very strange-looking Kitty Pride with a very uh, like 2007 haircut. And the only reason I would know it's Kitty Pride is because she's got a purple dragon on her shoulder. <laughs> then um, you got Rogue, who looks it's and Rogue's kind of like not the main subject of the panel, so she, there's not a lot of detail to her. But for some somehow. Uh, Tommy Lee Edwards captures Anna Paquin perfectly. She looks like a dead ringer for Anna Paquin Rogue. <laughs> 
And then there's just like I cannot tell who this last person is. She's kind of yeah. She's like golden green. She's got kind of pointy hair. No idea who that is. So it's point and pointy hair is the last minute. So it's Rogue Kitty, Lockheed Nightcrawler, Professor X, Colossus, Wolverine, and Pointy Hair Girl. And that's a weird X Men lineup. It's a very weird X Men lineup. But you're, uh, it is interesting that Straczynski, after showing all the the ways in which these things have rolled out of control, he then like uh, slows down and says, although some things were completely unaffected, like Thor. Thor right. isn't changed. Why would he have been changed other than he's not part of the Avengers? Well, there doesn't seem to be Avengers at all in this world. And Thor just, yeah. it's funny, every time we check in with Thor, he just seems to be like in Asgard dealing with his own shit, not having time for Midgar. Yeah. Although I am genuinely curious how Vision came to be in this world if Hank Pym was never part of the Avengers and so potentially never had the idea for Ultron. Elias, you are so on the same wavelength as me. That was my only nitpick with the history. I was just like, I but cannot- at the same time- Maybe Hank still created Ultron, but you know what? I think I think I can let that one slide. <laughs> I believe strongly in the idea of awarding no prizes, of uh, letting fans kind of resolve just tricky comics continuity on their own. But that was the one sticking point. Ross is like, I don't understand where Vision's coming from. Vision's super complicated. It only works in the context of this one Avenger story. Remember, Mr. Zinsky, seems like uh, you kind of glossed over some details, my bud. <laughs> As he addresses all of the rest. Yeah, as you address everything perfectly. So we've got basically one more character to to mainly talk about and then the ending. Yeah, one more and then the ending. So you want to talk about uh, what happens with Tony Stark? Oh, yeah. Well, we kind of skipped someone, but yeah. Oh, we did skip someone. Uh, Do you want to talk about what happens with Bruce Banner? Bruce Banner, in our an interesting twist, becomes Spider-Man through, I don't really know how to describe it other than sheer dumb luck. Yeah, it's convoluted, but he's it's so meticulously set up that um, it feels like a really natural consequence of the story. So the basic basic idea is Bruce Banner. He had, he felt really guilty about the Hulk in general being existing, and he wanted to find a cure for Peter. And so he's researching, 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 and he has a bunch of animals that were at the the gamma site that had maybe not survived, but weren't you know completely obliterated, and there was a dead spider. And so, or at least he thought it was dead. It's a tarantula. And so because he was feeling stressed or whatnot, and there's a whole a whole thing about Reed beating himself up over pushing Bruce or, or not stopping Bruce and telling him, take a fucking rest. And so Bruce goes into his lab to dissect this, this spider to find out what he can do, and he cuts it, and it freaks out. It jumps up, and it bites him. And so Bruce Banner becomes Spider-Man, but he becomes... I don't want to say the Spider-Man Reigns Spider-Man, but he He's becomes... He's got a similar costume to Spider-Man Reigns is why I think... Yeah, he, he basically has more spider than man and really is, like, unhinged. He, he, the panel shows him wrapped up in, in webs, and it's, it's really creepy. He's poking through creepy. dumpsters. You also yeah. get the feeling they don't really... It's They leave it intentionally kind of vague, but it's, like, implied that um, he spends a year traveling America as this, like, mutant spider serial killer eating people. And that Reed uh, brushes it under the rug because uh, of... He's, he's Nick a, Fury. Because he's Nick Fury and because uh, he's kind of uh, implicated in letting this uh, accident happen. But eventually they're they're able to get him back to his senses, rain, bring him in, and he's got a new Spider-Man costume. He's Spider-Man. But the explanation also for why he didn't 
take to it as well as Peter would have is the opposite reason that Peter didn't take as well to being the Hulk, which is that he was too old. And so he didn't have those weird hormonal hormonal imbalances, which made the radiation. Now it's, you know, bullshit radiation, but <laughs> it made the radiation, you know, it, it made it worse. It, it didn't, his body wasn't able to adapt to whatever spider changes were going on, which again, I love that he didn't just flip them. He made reasons why they would react differently, both biological and personal. I Bruce is the one character I really wish we spent a little bit more time with. Yeah. I, I could have used uh, made, the Doctor Strange stuff was sort of interesting, and I like Doctor Strange. Uh, the Tony Stark stuff didn't do much for me at all. He was there, and it was fine, and Straczynski's a good writer. But Bruce I'm really interested in because I feel like once he stops his like uh, weird serial killer year and uh, puts on the Spider-Man costume officially— we don't see what he's like as Spider-Man, and it seems like yeah. he's, he's like a secret agent assassin more than a stop-and-purse-snatchers in the Lower East Side or whatever. And I would have just liked, you know, a couple of pages of uh, what Bruce's headspace is like being this uh, secret agent Spider-Man. Yeah, I, which, I, I which is a bit of a shame. Yeah, just a bit of a wasted opportunity. But uh, I like I, I in other ways I appreciate how vague it leaves it because uh, Spider Man is an inherently creepy character, which is why it's fun that Peter Parker is like a nice, lovable guy. But so whenever they do stories about like actually Spider Man is terrifying, I always like that because uh, sometimes you forget when you're reading a lot of Spider Man comics and you're used to him being lovable, you forget that it's gross that he can has little hairs on his fingers that makes him stick to ceilings. He's got the big quip master, but only because he's a teen. And he's deeply insecure with himself. Uh, do you have anything to add about uh, Tony Stark? He shows up at the end. Yeah. yeah, they they needed to bring Tony Stark in in some way, and I appreciate the the way they brought him in. They were basically like, "Hi, I'm Tony Stank. I want to be Iron Man." And everyone's like, "No, your heart sucks. You're not allowed." <laughs> and so, but I think the interaction I liked was they. I think Straczynski just wanted to use that to as an excuse to bring Bucky in. And this was post-Winter Soldier. So Bucky had returned to the main universe, but it was not, you know, it, it hadn't been that many years. I, Winter Soldier would have um, still, I think, is still going on. I don't think... But wasn't I... Civil War concurrent with... or Civil War was after this, so Winter Soldier may have currently been going on. So maybe he didn't even know that it was Bucky back. Regardless. Yeah, I, it's right. It's right around the same time. I would have to look like month to month when the different reveals in the Winter Soldier comic happen. Yeah, Bucky is definitely like in the in the air. People are uh, considering ideas about Bucky, and that also seems like Bucky's such a Straczynski character to return to. Yeah, and he comes back, and he's basically like, "I want to be Iron Man because Steve saved my life," and he's like, "Without him." I probably would not have survived the war, which you read that and you're just like, oh, no, Bucky. Kind of a reverse. So sad. Yeah, reverse Winter Soldier situation. Yeah. I guess the interesting thing about Tony Stark is that Straczynski is kind of asserting that if you take away the him in the cave um, and his company and his money and everything, uh, Tony Stark would not have become a superhero. Tony Stark would have been like a mid-level office worker. That's kind. Of, that's kind of the idea. Unless really given like the kick in the pants, because at the because in the end he basically disobeys orders and he's like, all right. So before I get that, for those who have not read it and made it this far and don't care about spoilers, <laughs> I guess. I guess we we should have said this up, up front. Although I think this is pretty heavily implied. But yeah, when we do a book club book, we're going to be talking about the book pretty exhaustively in the episode. And if you were like, oh, I was planning on reading that book, then maybe uh, 
download the episode and wait, and we'll be waiting for you when you finished it. We say this four four episodes in, and basically near the end of the. I feel like we've mentioned. <laughs> I feel like we've mentioned this before, but if you just need a friendly reminder from your uh, Marvel buds, Elias and Jake, we spoil the books that we say we're going to talk about. This is true. So Galactus shows up with Silver Surfer, as you do, as most of these early, uh, you know, revisits of the early Marvel universe tend to do, because it's such a iconic and important event and i guess one of their first huge crossovers between all their major properties because everyone comes together to fight galactus avengers fantastic four all of that but now there are neither of those groups neither the avengers nor the fantastic four exist in this world shield does uh but the rest of the heroes are kind of just there they're doing their own thing uh, you also get uh, Namor and Cloak and Dagger show up. Uh, Black Widow and Daredevil show up for a panel, and they seem to be a duo. Like, uh, Black Widow isn't uh, never joins the Avengers and never becomes uh, like a good guy. She's working with uh, with Matt Murdock. Yeah, and not running around with Hawkeye. And not running around with Hawkeye. I also uh, I'm looking at the big splash page with all the heroes flying into fight Galactus. A uh, Green Goblin shows up. Uh, Scarlet Witch. I see um, Aurora from uh, from Alpha Flight, and I think that's Vindicator also from Alpha Flight in the background. Wow. Um, uh, Ms. Marvel, uh, who's Carol Danvers before she became Captain Marvel. Interesting. Oh, there's Cannonball Doug Ramsey of the New Mutants. He's cannonballing. He's nigh invulnerable, and he's blasting. Storms there. Yeah. And then Scorpion, Electra, Shocker. Uh, That's yeah. on the next page. Yeah, I see Dazzler, Havoc. But yeah, so th- this is implied to be like the the first time. Oh, interestingly, I think that's Jean Grey in her X-Factor costume. So that's a, um, I'm not going to spend, I have not put any thought into this because I did not notice this when I was reading it the first time. Oh, and I see Ant-Man, so Hank Pym's, that's definitely Hank Pym. But um, I mentioned, if X-Factor is here, Straczynski's doing something very particular with like the continuity of when he thinks this takes place. But regardless, this is implied to be the first superhero team up in this world. There's no teams of superheroes, so this is the first mm-hmm. time superheroes are working together. Yeah. And that and that's where Tony Stark is like, Enough is enough. I can't I'm not gonna stand here and not become Iron Man. He smashes the glass and, <laughs> and puts on the suit and runs out the the door being like, I have to do this. I'm taking this I'm taking this out, even if it will kill me, which I believe it does. I believe he has a heart attack because of the, the suit his his heart couldn't handle it. Yeah, kind of ignobly. Like, Tony doesn't really... Uh, I mean, he's in the no, battle, yeah. but he doesn't really turn the tide because uh, who ends up turning the tide is uh, Peter as Hulk yeah. shows up. And even though he's hated and he's, like, probably this universe's most hated villain, um, he's the one who makes the heroic sacrifice. He's the one who inspires Silver Surfer to betray Galactus and join the heroes. And he ends up being the... Peter Parker as Hulk ends up being the man who saves the Earth. And he hadn't been seen for probably decades or so he had been out in the wilderness because early on the Straczynski's like fact turned to to myth myth turned to legend and he basically just became the creature in the desert people had not necessarily forgotten the Hulk but hadn't because Peter was just hiding Straczynski loves those Lord of the Rings (laughs) by the way I know doing this roll call is not that exciting but I just uh, the characters get even more obscure I see Snowbird and Tigra. I would not have recognized half these people. Archangel, which, yeah, just wild, wild stuff, Straczynski. Really would love to uh, know the stories that are happening between the stories here. Yeah, I would, I would really wish, I, w- I would want to explore this world a little more, but also I think, I think we got enough. I, I don't know if kind of like revisiting, even if you do or do not like it, the old man Logan world. We didn't really need to revisit that so many times. 
agreed. Yeah. Um, this stands. Uh, I love it as a miniseries, and I there there might be another story worth telling in here, but it's cool if we don't. You know what? It reminds me of a recent comic that has a really similar uh, vibe. Spider Man Life Story. Spider Man Life Story. That was exactly what I was gonna say. Yeah. Um, which is just like another alternate universe telling that follows its own logic and is really self-contained and takes these big swings. Yeah, and the, the own, mm-hmm. and the big difference between those two is even though both move forward in real time, the conceit of the other one is what if Spider-Man had actually lived through life without the sliding time scale of comics versus this, which is changing events and then then following through on the sliding time without the sliding time scale of comics. Also, the other one goes to quote-unquote present day, which the further and further out we go, it's yeah. no longer present day. But, yeah. I appreciate... I I really love this, this miniseries. I think it's one of those things that you... I think most people should give it a read. If Even if you don't really like Marvel comics necessarily, it's a really nice self-contained take on the early Marvel Universe. Gives you an idea of, you know what it could have been like and even if you're not familiar with any of it you're probably familiar at least with spider-man and potentially now iron man uh, and the hulk the characters he picks are iconic enough that and he in story makes enough of a, a a reference to be like this is what changed and then all the rest is is nice for anyone who is more familiar but the broad strokes anyone can get like i read this before knowing most of the first time I read this, I didn't know most of these characters. I still don't know some of the other ones, but I didn't know much not, about that era, and it didn't matter. Snowbird's not one of your favorites? No, unfortunately not. But I understood it enough, and the story is told The story is told in such a strong manner that even if you know almost none of these characters, I can almost guarantee you're familiar with at least one of them, uh, especially after all the Marvel movies have come out. Spider-Man is one of those huge names i think i i think what works about it fundamentally and this is going to tie together a couple different parts of our conversation is that by by uh, making the universe topsy-turvy by by changing identities and changing the the proceedings of the story straczynski's really like bearing down into the themes of what he thinks are like what are what's the story of superhero comics what is it all about to be a superhero in the marvel universe yeah and what does it mean to be a superhero? And what does it mean to be a superhero? Because I, you know, you see a lot of like Twitter takes about, um, oh well, if Batman just like uh, created universal basic income in Gotham, then um, instead of like buying cool boats to fight uh, d- disabled people, then maybe uh, Gotham would be fixed or something. And that's kind of like missing the conceit of the genre, obviously intentionally. But it's like a bad faith take on uh, what superhero comics are about. And what superhero yeah. comics are about to Straczynski is it's about choosing to live like Superman and not like your Nazi father. <laughs> and that's what this comic is about, is about people who are struggling and who have difficult lives and backgrounds and who suffer tragedies and who turn those tragedies into um, altruism. And I think that to Straczynski was like such a powerful force in his own life that that's the major mm-hmm. theme in most of his work. Even if it takes decades, as the comic asserts, yeah, there is still that some some people are able to do it right away. Others, it takes decades, but it is always possible. Yeah, a little cheesy, a little preachy. <laughs> I like my superhero comics that way, so I liked it a lot. The writing was great. I thought the art was uh, was also fantastic, and uh, 
notably worked really well for this. Uh, if you haven't read Straczynski, this is not a long comic, so this is a great intro to what he's all about. He's a really important guy to Elias. So if you've mm-hmm. uh, grown any affection for my co-host in these last few episodes and you want to know where Elias is coming from, I think you'll get an insight into his heart and soul by reading Marvel Bullet Points by J. Michael Straczynski and Tommy Lee Edwards. Yeah, and the, the book even ends on a poem quote, which I normally hate, but it worked really well. When it's done well, it can be thematically resonant, and here it does just that. Next time, we've got another book, and uh, unlike this one, which was very short, and unlike this one, which had writers who I think we would find less controversial, (laughs) next time we're doing Joss Whedon's Astonishing X-Men, all 25 issues of it. All 25 issues! Astonishing X-Men! Joss Whedon. We gotta have. We're gonna have to talk about Whedon. We're gonna have to talk about X Men, and we're gonna have to talk about all twenty-five amazing, crazy, insane issues of this comic. You've never read this one before, Elias, have you? No, I haven't. This is I've, so. You know, yeah. I'm a big X Men fan. This is the comic I uh, most recommend people read to start X Men. I think this is the best starting point. That's saying something. I, I didn't really have a response to that, other than next time. Well, not next time. In two t- in two weeks, our next book club. Oh, Jesus, not in two weeks. In one month. I was doing so well. I was doing so well, people. Yeah. <laughs> In one month. All right. For our next book club, we will be doing 25 issues. So get started reading on this early. They should all be on Marvel Unlimited gags. Uh, or try and see if they have it from your local library. It might be on Hoopla if your library has that. It's uh, I'm sure it's on Comixology. I have them in hardcover. Mm-hmm. It's easy to find the paperbacks. This is a pretty uh, frequently published comic, so... um. There's a lot of formats. It's a if you want to if you've never read it and you want to read along, um, I recommend getting started sooner rather than later. I think it's a great read. And we might even have a special guest star, and by special I mean just a guest star. Um, I think he's pretty special. Uh, Astonishing X Men is indeed on Hoopla, Hoopla Digital. Perfect. So get it, find it, read it, and we will see you in two weeks for something different, and in four weeks for the net. Oh well, no. It might be a little more. There's always sometimes that awkward fifth week in between book club episodes. But next time. Next time. On the next third Friday of the month, we will hear from you then. So where can we find you, Jake, on the larger interwebs in between? Uh, you could find me on uh, multiversitycomics.com. It's a really great website. Uh, I write frequently about X-Men, and maybe I'll even uh, be writing about... Uh, astonishing x-men in anticipation of our book club i am also on twitter which is not a great website but i'm there um at rambling underscore moose and how about you elias if people wanted to uh read your words and uh hear your ideas where would they find those things they could find me on twitter at quetzal ish q-u-e-t-z-e-l-i-s-h the reason why it is there is because i am secretly a squirrel and just have no idea how to spell squirrel because we're moose and squirrel. Moose, we we are moose and squirrel. Um, but now you can you can find me on Twitter. There, uh, I sometimes tweet. I sometimes put stuff. I definitely do a lot of self promotion. I am currently doing a lot of self promotion for a secret project that I feel like I shouldn't chill for here, but I will chill for it on my Twitter. But I also am writing Multiversity. Still doing Babylon Five, I believe. There are just a few episodes left of season three, and then. Who knows? The fall is a weird time, especially now that uh, all of the TV shows have been pushed until January. Um, well, that just gives us a lot more time to catch up on wonderful comics. This is true. All right. 
thank you all for being here and we will see you in a couple weeks see you next time folks excelsior